please sit down. So we hear from God's word as we discover something about his promises. Uh, I'm going to be dapping around slightly, uh, so I'll try not to make it too difficult. Uh, From Genesis chapter 12, just a couple of verses, and then chapter 13, and then some verses from Paul's letter to the Galatians. The Lord said to Abraham, Go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and whoever curses you I will curse and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. And then chapter 13 an incident with Abraham and his uh, nephew Lot as they move into the promised land, into Canaan. So Abraham went up from Egypt to the Negev and his wife and everything he had and Lot went with him. Abraham had become very wealthy in livestock and in silver and gold. From the Negev he went from place to place until he came to Bethel, to the place between Bethel and Ai where his tent had been earlier and where he had first built an altar. There Abraham called on the name of the Lord. Now Lot, who was moving about with Abraham, also had flocks and herds and tents. But the land could not support them while they stayed together, for their possessions were so great they were not able to stay together. And quarrelling arose between Abraham's herders and the herders of Lot. Canaanites and Perizzites were also living in the land at that time. So Abraham said to Lot, Let's not have any quarrelling between you and me or between your herders and mine, for we are close relatives. Is not the whole land before you? Let's part company. If you go to the left, I'll go to the right. If you go to the right, I'll go to the left. Lot looked around and saw that the whole plain of the Jordan was well watered like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt towards Zoar. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. So Lot chose for himself the whole plain of the Jordan and set out towards the east. The two men parted company. Abraham lived in the land of Canaan, while Lot lived among the cities of the plain and and pitched his tents near Sodom. Now the people of Sodom were wicked and were sinning greatly against the Lord. The Lord said to Abraham after Lot had parted from him, Look around you from where you are, to the north and the south, to the east and the west. All the land that you see, I will give to you and your offspring forever. I will make your offspring like the dust of the earth, so that if anyone could count the dust, then your offspring could be counted. Go, walk through the length and breadth of the land, for I am giving it to you. So Abraham went to live near the great trees of Mamre at Hebron, where he pitched his tents. There he built an altar to the Lord. And then just a few verses from Paul's letter to the Galatians, chapter 3, verse 26, where he says this. So in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. For all of you who are baptised into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, 
neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. This is God's word. We pray it will speak to us today. And indeed, as I've said earlier on, uh, God's promises for God's people is what I was told to preach about. Told to use Genesis 13. I have slightly expanded it, so I do apologise if I've treading on anybody's toes, but we'll see. But promise is, is something of a key idea in Scripture. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise, uh, as Paul said. From Old Testament through into the New Testament, the notion of God making promises that he then keeps goes through the whole of the Bible and from the the people of Israel right through into the Christian life of the New Testament. And it focuses around Abraham or Abraham as he became called later on, and I might remember to use the right terms, but don't worry too much, whichever one you prefer, as a, a, not, not as a significant figure, as someone who embodies Uh, both someone who has heard God's promises but has also received them and responded to them. So, okay, what's this all about in the first case? Well, it's about the nature of the promise in the first first case, what this promise is all about. And it's primarily, primarily founded in God. I'll go back a bit because I want to do that, that's it. (laughs) It's founded in God. It's about God. It's about what he says and about what he does. That's why I was talking to the children about the, it's important who makes promises. Because sometimes, well, there are going to be promises made tomorrow in the budget, aren't there? <laughs> and I'm not going to make any political statements, but your reaction then shows that we all have a, just that little bit of hesitancy about anything that politicians say. Because they make promises and it doesn't always quite get worked out. So it's important, therefore, to know who's making the promises and what it's founded in. And it is founded very much in God. The promise that was made to Abraham was about land, about property, but it was also about people and it was about blessing. It was about, well, it it was about what the Bible calls shalom in the Old Testament, that that Hebrew word, you're all aware of it, I'm sure. It, It means peace, but it means peace on a grand scale. It means wholesomeness of life. It means good health. It means good behaviour. It means uh, having an enriched life where it's joyful and shared with all sorts of people. It's an expansive life. That's shalom, okay? And that's what's being promised to God's people because God's care will always bring about shalom. But ultimately, it's actually about knowing God, therefore, in the first place. I don't know if you noticed, Abraham is talking very freely with God. Uh, The passages also refer to him setting up altars. He worships God. He's someone engaging with God as a living, real person. And that's very important when it comes to understanding what blessing is about now, what what the, the promise is about now. Because God is eternal and therefore there's an ultimate hope involved in all of this. And although God may seem to be far away sometimes, we might have to use binoculars to try and see him. Knowing God is at the heart of the promise. You shall know me. Jesus said, this is eternal life, that you know the eternal God and Jesus Christ whom he sent. It's in that 
that's in a sense the ultimate promise, isn't it? That you will know the living God, the creator of all things, the sustainer of all things, the welcomer of all people into an eternal realm of joy. It's not a bad promise, is it really, when you think about it? And that's what it's all about, essentially. Although it may be couched in terms of property and people and herds as far as Abraham is concerned, we see this coming through as something much, much bigger that expands to the very knowledge of God, to be able to know him. Okay then. Well, what do we have to do to receive this promise? Because it does have to be entered into. When, uh, when God made the promise firstly to Abraham, he then said to him, right, you've got to go. You've got to go off and do something. You've got to go to the land. You've got to leave your family. You've got to go to a new place. And in doing that, in the obedience of that, Abraham was expressing his deep trust in God. I mean, let's face it, you're not going to move several hundred miles on a whim. Well, I don't think you would. There must have been something very powerful in the encounter that he had with God that stirred a very profound faith, a deep faith, that was willing to take risks. It's a pretty risky journey all the way from Ur of the Chaldees down into, into Canaan. It was a risky journey. Actually, if you read some of the other passages, um, that immediately before chapter 13, we see Abraham making a real mess of things by pretending that his wife isn't his wife and she ends up, well, anyway, you know what happens when that happens, uh, in Egypt. And, and the, the Pharaoh, amazingly, let him, let him go and wasn't, you know, because all sorts of horrible things happen. But he made mistakes. It was a, a dangerous journey in all sorts of ways because he was fearful of what might happen to him in that foreign land. Okay. But in that journey, there was still trusting God. And although it wavered at times, because when he tried to pass his wife off as his sister, that was definitely a wavering of faith. Here in this particular passage, we see that faith being renewed again in chapter 13, as he hears from God and he responds to it. But there were some also other things, and I find this fascinating about chapter 13, because the way in which Abraham expresses his obedience is that he, he actually begins to act in the way that God would want him to act. You remember the scene. They come into the land. It won't support the, uh, the, 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 great, uh, uh, the great herds of both of them. And so Lot, uh, on behalf of his herders who are having some frustration and punch-ups probably with Abraham, says, what are we going to do about it? And Abraham, well, firstly seeks peace in that conflicted situation because it was a very conflicted one. If you think about it, their livelihood depended upon their herds. If their herds couldn't be fed or watered, then their lives would become damaged, would become less. So it was really quite a significant thing and therefore led to conflict. But Abraham's response was to seek peace in this. So he said, look, okay, you go to the right, I'll go to the left. Or if you go to the right, I'll go to the left. Let's Let's separate out so that we can find lands that will do for all of us. In so doing, 
He was actually expressing quite a selfless approach, really, because in a sense, he wasn't looking to go to what appeared to be the best place. It looks as though that's what Lot actually did. He looked and thought, well, that looks really nice. He forgot Sodom was there and it wasn't a very nice place. But the land around it looked nice, so that's where he went. But Abraham expressed a selflessness. He wasn't thinking of what would be best for him. And in so doing, he was expressing grace, expressing a willingness to give to another person, to give way to another person, as it were, to act with generosity. Now, if you think about it, doesn't that look rather like God? It certainly does to me. And Abraham sealed it by constantly worshipping God. I've already mentioned, he, he talks about the, or the passage talks about the altars he sets up and he calls on the name of the Lord. He engages with God. He prays, he worships, he knows God. And as he knows God, he's acting in the way that God would have him act. And those three things, I think, are really quite important things when it comes down to how we should be. And indeed, What is it that we're promised then? If we're going to sort of summarise all this, well, firstly, we're promised a place in God's family. That's we are heirs according to the promise. We actually belong. We're not insignificant, as it were. We're not wandering around with nobody caring. We actually belong in God's family. We're promised that God will be with us, God's presence all the time. Remember Jesus in his last words in Matthew's Gospel to his disciples, wherever you go, make disciples, he says, of all nations, and I will be with you to the very end of the age. And the Holy Spirit was the confirmation of that reality. He became, he was gifted to the church as the presence of Jesus, as the communication with Christ, with the Father, the the whole wonder of the Trinity. And that presence is promised to us. We're also promised God's care and provision in whatever the circumstances and into eternity. We're promised that God will be there all the time. Now this is quite important because there are times when we don't believe that, aren't there? There are times when we certainly don't feel it. But the promise made by someone we can trust is that he is there. And in the hard and the difficult times, that's what we need to hold on to. And indeed, I want to suggest there are ways that we can actually, ways we can actually encounter that, if you like. Just just see, what does God look for us then, from us? He wants our acceptance of his promises. He wants us to trust. And he wants us to become more and more aware of the fact that he is with us and around us. There's a great danger, isn't there, in Christianity? Well, I think in any, any faith, really, that you focus on particularly religious things. So God's here because this is a church. But we don't necessarily think that when we're in the shop down the road, God's there, but he is. Or when we're at work, we don't necessarily think God's around. In fact, sometimes we're pretty sure he isn't, or he doesn't feel like it anyway if we're having trouble, but he is there. Or in our family where there is maybe an argument amongst the kids or something. It doesn't sound as though God's... Well, yes, he is there. And in those times of very real trial, maybe through illness or through fear of illness, God's there. We need to develop an awareness of that, though. So, 
Being peacemakers, being selfless, being gracious are the hallmarks of God's people because that's what Jesus is like, basically, as he revealed God to us and continues to do that. And we, as part of his family, can share these these hallmarks, these things. But how are we going to develop an awareness? Let me show you a quote. This is a quotation from a man called Frederick Beekner. Now, it doesn't look like that, but that's how they pronounce it apparently in America because he's an American writer, he's a, he's a Presbyterian minister. But he says this, let me read it to you. Listen to your life. See it for the fathomless mystery that it is. In the boredom and pain of it, no less than in the excitement and gladness. Touch, taste, smell your way to the holy and hidden heart of it. Because in the last analysis, all moments are key moments and life itself is grace. Now, if we believe God loves us, if we believe God is with us, then life is grace, isn't it? That whatever is happening around us, God is there working out the grace, the peace, selflessness and so on. Our our awareness is often not of that but we need to try and grow it. And you might say, well, that all sounds very lovely when it's nice and happy. Well, here's another quotation from him, that uh, at all times we need to seek to be aware of God. At no time more than at a painful time do we live out of the depths of who we are instead of out of the shallows. That's worth just thinking a bit about. But I think it's true, isn't it? When life is easy and freewheeling and everything's happy and so on, we bowl along and we're probably not learning a lot. We're probably not growing a lot. We're probably not developing a lot of our understanding of God. But when, when the debts come, when there is pain, when there is sorrow, when there is loss, that's the time when it begins to matter that God is there. And often... If we seek him, that's where we will find him. What is it they say? There is no place deeper than you can go that God is not deeper yet. But it requires that exercise of faith, that desire to be more and more like God, that desire to be a follower, to be a child, knowing the living God. Just some words from John's Gospel. Uh, by people who were confronted with the deep things. They were worried, you know, people were leaving Jesus and he said to them, are you going to go as well? And they said, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We've come to believe and know that you are the Holy One of God. That came out of the depths of rejection. Jesus was being rejected. His disciples joined in, in being rejected, But out of that, they expressed their faith in the one whom they loved and who loved them. Have any of of you heard J. John preach? Come across a guy called J. John? Yeah, he's he's, he's an Anglican canon uh, of Cypriot origin, I seem to hear. He's an evangelist. But he says that often when he hears a sermon like the one I've just preached... The thing that rings in his head is, so how? (laughs) So how? It's all very well saying all of that, 
How can I become more aware? Well, I'm going to suggest some things. Some of this may help, others of it won't. You may make notes if you want. Try and remember it. If if not, we'll see. How can we increase our awareness of God around us all the time? (laughs) Can you press a button for me, Dave? Consciously using our physical senses more. Now, did you notice that thing that, that Beekner said about smell your way, feel your way to an awareness of God? Sometimes we, are, we have become Gnostics. Ooh, it's a posh word, isn't it? It was a heresy several centuries ago in Christianity where everything became super spiritualized. And people said, oh, the physical doesn't matter. We just spiritually have to reach out to God. And actually, they all became very pompous and, you know, thought they were better than everybody else. The fact of the matter is we are bodies. And through our bodies, we can become more aware of God because he made them. So in becoming aware of the world around us, using our physical senses... You're going to go home and you're going to have your lunch and you're going to smell a glorious roast dinner, probably, maybe, I don't know. Or is it pot roast? But in the smelling of that, there is the provision of God in your food. Isn't that right? Smell your way to the awareness of God's richness. And taste as well is another thing that you can do. Use your physical senses because God is at work. Can we have another one? Because this obviously isn't working. Slowing down is another helpful thing. Now, this is a word of prophecy to me, because I don't, all right? God is constantly saying, slow up, because I'm not that sort of person. So, but I found I have to do it sometimes, because you can't go bowling on all the time. Because sometimes you need to just sit down, shut up, and listen to what God is saying to what he's doing around us. So don't be afraid of slowing down. Little story about this. We were, my wife and I, we were at a very interesting discussion at Ely Cathedral with a woman called Sarah Perry. She's a, she's a novelist. She wrote uh, The Essex Serpent. I don't know if you've ever read that. Well, you should go and read it. Uh, and it was an interview. It was about how to be good, how to be good as a novelist. She comes from a Baptist background, actually a strict Baptist background. And, uh, but she is a very active person. You know, it came through from what she was saying. She was always doing this, that, the other, rushing in there. And I just felt very pastoral towards her. And I went up to her after and said, look, I said, look, as one Baptist to another, I said, have you ever heard or put into practice the idea of Sabbath rest? And she looked me straight in the eye and she said, have you been talking to my mother? (laughs) So she's been, but her mum's got it right. We need to take space at times. And the Sabbath was not made, we are not made for the Sabbath. The Sabbath was made for us. The notion of rest, do not despise it and don't think it's wrong to have a rest or to take time out. Take it out to become more aware of God. It's important. Can we have the next one, Dave? Finding specific time or times to notice what's happening around you in a day. It doesn't need to be a lot of time. Uh, It might be lunchtime. If, you, if you're having a lunch somewhere and you've got a, a few, ju- just try to, God is with me. So what's he doing now? He's provided this food. That's good. He's provided the people I'm around, who are around me, the, the circumstances. What's being said to me by God through them? Is there someone here that I can show 
care to? Or is there someone who's caring for me? And I can be thankful about that. But take time to notice it. It's a good, just try and do it. Uh, Even once a day is a good thing. Review the day, perhaps at the end of it. Say to God, what's been going on today, Lord? And just look through your day. Run it like a film, okay? And see if there are things in there that have brought you joy, because that will be God. Or things where you felt really loved and welcomed by someone, because that will be God. Or something that you feel uh, stirs your faith, that will be God. Or even you may find things that you're sorry about because you messed up. Well, that's God as well, just giving you a bit of a nudge to get it right again. But unless we take the time to just review, it doesn't take long to run a film of the day. It really doesn't. It's worth doing. Next one, David. Being particular about what is going on around us. Now, what do I mean by that? I don't mean being particular, sniffy. I mean noticing what you're doing. Again, I'm bad at this. Uh, I've recently discovered I eat too fast because my stomach has told me I eat too fast, okay? And what I have to do is slow down. But what I probably also need to do is to notice what I'm doing, to, to, be, to, to, take, to take care to focus on. If I'm having a meal, if I'm cutting the food, how does that feel? You know, what, what, what is it doing? I'm, I'm, how is it using my hands? How is it using the implements? And the taste, again, you know, I'm, I'm not just into food, by the way. You can do this with other things as well. But take any situation, any circumstance, and try and live it more fully. Cleaning the house, not just rushing around, but spending time just focusing a little bit on the sensations on the sounds of, uh, uh, or if I'm washing up, of, of, the, of the freshness of, of the smells once you've got the grease off. Things like that. Do you see what I'm driving at? It, it's a bit like mindfulness. It's one of those things that people have been suddenly all, all into, but it's been, Christians have been doing it for years. But, you know, it's trying to become just more aware of what's going on around me. Because in that, God is going to be present. Okay, next one, David. Accepting that God is at work and to be found in all aspects of life. Well, in a sense, I should have put that first because it's an assumption. But, you know, sometimes we act as though it isn't so. Well, maybe we need to act as though it is. And uh, the next one. Valuing silence. And the next one, David, please, the last one. And finding stillness can be important things as well. We live in a very noisy world, don't we? I know that. I'm a preacher, for goodness sake. You know, I'm always making noise. But I found that it's really important. There needs to be times when the noise has to stop and the stillness has to be embraced because there God will be found afresh. And it's sometimes when we stop making all the noise that he can actually get through to us. You know, a thought comes to mind or a person speaks to us or a passage of scripture comes alive because we've let there be the time And we've dampened down all the noise and we've allowed God to be present, as it were. Or rather, we've become more aware that he is because that's what this is about. It's not he's not there, he's there. But we can develop a better awareness of that. And in so doing, we realise more and more the promises that he has made to us. Let's pray. Let's just be silent for a bit, shall we?